Welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist history and theory podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to, but you should still do it though. You should. Um, I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Jorge. You really need like a party name or nom de guerre or something. <laughs> We're talking about it today on the Twitch channel. Like Paul is Paul Channel Strip. So you could be like Jorge. Um, to be determined what TBD. identity. Movie clip. Maybe I'll just reveal my true self. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe. I have a different Jorge in my phone as Jorge Tacos because he ran a taco truck and that's how I met him. So you can't be Jorge Tacos because I already have one. Yeah. And it'd be problematic if you called me Jorge Tacos. I'm just saying. Like, I don't know what you're going to pick, but you can't pick that. <laughs> okay. Well, not. Don't worry. Okay, sorry. He, I mean, th- this guy has many names as well. He's like, shout out to shout out to Jorge, uh, man, man about town. Um, we're probably gonna come visit you sometime soon in Mexico. TBD. TBD. Um, but yeah. Anyway, let's um, let's start the fucking show. So, what did we do last time? We did chapter two. Yeah, we did chapter two. Stay and rev. Yep, that's what we did. And we had you know a little bit of historical lead up to understanding chapter two because as it turns out there's a lot of history that you need to know about if you want to understand this book these chapters so now what we're going to do is we're going to do some more history for you folks we're, we're keeping to our name we're a history and theory podcast yeah i mean i really bit off more than i could chew it's like so much more history than I, there's like so much history there's just so much stuff yeah but i hope the people listening at home enjoy us Going through the painstaking research and blood, sweat, and tears of making sure that we present this history very easily to your ears. No, true, true. Um, no, it's it's really good. It's a journey. We're going on it together. Um, but now, in order to understand Chapter 3 of State and Revolution, turns out we got to learn about the Paris Commune. Which is great because the Paris Commune is cool as shit. It's pretty pretty cool and really important. And also, in most history, seldomly spoken about and, and taught. Hmm, wonder why. Yeah, I did not learn about this in school. No, me neither. Hmm. Hmm. Makes you think. Yeah, it's definitely interesting in the sense of uh, you know. But also, you know, it was a short period of time, but also to your point. Why is it that people don't talk about it? Hmm. Mm, well, according to Marx, it was the first dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah, well, let's talk about it. Why does why does the Paris Commune matter, Jamie? Aside, it matters aside from so that. much. I mean, it matters because we have to know about it for Chapter 3 of State and Rev. Um, what, what do we got going? I mean, I was going to say some just like facts about it first. Like this Go isn't why it. it mattered, but it did last from March to May of 1871. Um, it happened at the tail end. Uh, well, right after the Franco-Prussian War. Which we'll talk about. In which um, Paris was defended by the National Guard. The National Guard becomes a very important player. Um, working class radicalism. It grew among these soldiers. Um, they tried to establish the Third French Republic under Adolf Thiers, but, you know, the Parisians were like, no, bitch, this is what we're doing. Um, they governed for two months. They did what I what could be considered like a proto-social democracy. Yeah, I guess so. It's like a forerunner of that. They were still, you know, still working some things out. And it really, it got put down 
far too soon for it to accomplish very much of anything, but it still did a lot in a little amount of time. They, what did they do? They got the separation of church and state going. And for real this time. For real this time. Uh, yes, this, but unironically, um, they did some self like community policing. Right. Pretty cool. As an abolitionist, I pay attention to that. Oh, what else did they do? They canceled rent. Wow. Yeah, that, I know. That rocks. Yeah. Holy shit. They, uh, they canceled. They also canceled child labor. Wow. Child labor is canceled. That, that being wow. problematic, very obviously problematic. It's, it's quite remarkable that child labor was something that was commonplace in society for, and it's still commonplace in many societies, but especially Western society yeah. until very recently. Yeah. Well, I mean, Marx has some interesting ideas about that that maybe we'll talk about in another episode (laughs) um, about how maybe like we should put the kids to work, but only in a way that uh, teaches them. Anyway, uh, sidebar. What else? Oh, the workers, uh, they passed some laws so the workers could take over shops that had been abandoned by the bosses. Mm -hmm. Pretty darn cool. I mean, the bosses weren't using them. So like, whatever. Um, there were some socialist currents. There were some feminist currents. There were even some anarchist currents. Sacre bleu. Oh my goodness. And, uh, yeah, like I said, it was squashed way too soon. Um, yeah, only two months. It lasted two months. But they did Ten a weeks. lot. You know, some of those, those months were decades happen once again. And, um, it's also funny because the, the bourgeois thought that Marx, it was all Marx's fault that he like. He did, Marx did the Paris Commune via this uh, Workers International that he was just, you know, the puppet master of. Yeah, it's interesting. And we'll talk about it, you know, probably in another episode when we're, when we're talking about the legacy of the Paris Commune. But it it does appear to be the case, you know, people who, people didn't know about Marx if they were aware of like labor organizing and like the uh, socialist struggle at that time. But this was, uh, from what I understand, what made Marx famous or you know depending on who you're talking to infamous on the world stage because and at least from the point of view france because what jamie just mentioned of they thought well who the fuck did this who did this who's responsible i know it's that marx it's that darn marx that dastardly marx that meddling marx and what's funny about marx is that you know we know and we'll talk about how marx really wasn't responsible but marx in his amazing loving self-promoting self he's like yeah, that was me. Yeah, I did that shit. But but rather it's just like my ideas, because he viewed that as like, that validates my theory. And people are doing revolution because of my theory. Therefore, yeah, it's me. Man, we could all learn something from that level of confidence. It's truly remarkable. <laughs> but as we know, I mean, also like, it's funny, right? Because the, the bougies, they've got this great man theory of history. They're like, well, you know, the people couldn't possibly have done no. this for themselves. There no There must be a guy. There must be like some, you know, some Jew or whatever, just like pulling the strings and telling them what to do. This is also France. So yeah, they probably were doing anti-Semitism as well, given who Marx was as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. So, okay. Going into the Paris Commune, let's set the stage a little bit. All right. So Paris... Well, let's let's talk about the demographics of France first. So France was divided between um, a rural, very Catholic, very conservative population in the countryside versus a more liberal and or socialist population in the cities. 
Right. And it's also important to remember that, that you know, it's not entirely that, but, you know, it, that's kind of basically how it broke down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, we see the rise of the urban proletariat during this time period. Um, in the first parliamentary elections that France had, the rural people, the, the rural, the simple rural folk, they supported the Bonapartists, while the urban folk were more likely to support the Republicans, people who wanted democracy. And Paris was very Republican. And remember, small R Republican, not the Republican Party of the United mm, States. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, yeah, these people, I mean, if anything, they were libs. Um, but like, look, it was a different time. All right. There was like, let's give bourgeois democracy a chance. It's only just been it's just being born and uh, we'll work out if we need to fucking fix it. So definitely better than having a king. That's for sure. Yes. They, that I mean, I agree with that. Sure. It was progressive in that way. So, yeah, the 1869 census of Paris revealed there were 2 million people total. 500,000 of them were industrial workers. Wow. AKA proletarians. And then there were another 304,000 workers working in other industries. So also proletarians. Um, only about 40,000 were employed in factories and large enterprises. Most of them were employed in small-scale industries in textiles, furniture, and construction. Um, there were also 115,000 servants and 45,000 concierges. What does a concierge even do? I think it's like get, pe- get stuff on people's behalf and also buy things, I think. All right. Well, you know, make that paper. Get on that hustle. <laughs> Uh, and in addition to the native French population, there were about 100,000 immigrant workers and political refugees, um, the largest number being from Italy and Poland. Yeah, and we also must remember that, you know, at this time, especially Italy was um, still being unified, I think, if I remember correctly, and we could talk about it some other time, but I think Napoleon III had a part in terms of the unification of Italy through, I think, indirect means, but that's a different point. Sidebar. All right. So, Jorge, you want to give us a little bit of history leading up to the Franco-Prussian War. Of course, Jamie. Well, um, kind of what we, we just said, you know, leading up to the Franco-Prussian War, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, events occurred leading up to that. That you know, How is it that France, this nation that, you know, was, had not gone to war and since, you know, Napoleon got to uh, the position of being a Franco-Prussian war. And then to be clear, there were, there were other uh, excursions during the, sec- uh, the Second French Empire, but there is something about the Second French Empire that led to this. And also, important to that as well, we have to set the stage leading up to the Paris Commune. What happened in France that led to people <sighs> not just to you know, have, after the war, the another republic, but even going beyond that, but saying no, we want to have worker, you know, autonomy now. You know, how what 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 is it? So well, you know, parts of the Second French Empire was contradictory. On on you know, on the one hand, Paris reflected the rapidly growing French economy. You know, capitalism is really starting to grow here. It's probably the first age of like you know massive capitalist expansion. You know, artisans dominated industry producing many luxury goods that became to epitomize French manufacturing at the time. Additionally, the empire's financial institutions boosted industrial production. If you have a bunch of banks and, you know, uh, uh, credit unions that are just boosting up all them all into the, you know, industrial production, then of course they can expand. It just makes it easier. 
there was a proliferation of trains being built and used throughout France, you know, better infrastructure, things of that nature, of course. I love trains. On the other hand, the wealth was not spread across the entire population, Mm -hmm. obviously. Now, uh, there was this person, you know, uh, uh, Baron Baron Georges Hausmann. Nice pronunciation. uh, His renovation of Paris, or Paris, if you want to go. and we will talk about, about that renovation later, but um, that renovation of Paris destroyed many people's homes and built fancy restaurants and storefronts in her place. One could argue this is an example of gentrification, interestingly enough. You know, we don't typically think about gentrification in the context, you know, in history, but gentrification is something that's happened, you know, for a long period of time. Yeah, since the gentry still was a thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you're getting rid of like the... The, the poor, the urban people, the, the ones that are like, no, I do that. We, you got to get the people out of here. And you're making sure, like uh, Jamie said, the gentry, the gentlemen, the, the people who can spend money, the ones with wealth mm-hmm. to come in and spend them. That, that's gentrification, that's, which is what happened. And this led to overcrowding in, in Paris, and you know, particularly in northern and eastern Paris. You know, the quote here is working people lived in t- miserable, tiny apartments or rooming houses struggled to get by. This is a quote from a book by. Uh, history professor from Yale, uh, John Merriman, um, great book called uh, Massacre. About Hell the Paris yeah. I, that book sounds so good. Um, and I know that because I had a long Twitter thread when I was reading this um, this review of it that some shit lib wrote in The New Yorker. Which we'll link to. And they were so, they were like still so mad that they did the Paris Commune. It was fucking hilarious. Which is why people are still mad about it. And this review was written, I think, in 2014, right? Like yep, 2014. Yep. Like, like if, if, were still, mad. <laughs> if they were still mad about it, that should make you consider why. Why are, mm-hmm. were they, why are they still mad about something that happened? No, this year, in, 18, in 2021, um, this the Paris Commune happened in 1871. It's 150 years since the Paris Commune. Oh, it's a, it's a big birthday. It is a big birthday. So 150 years ago, why are people still mad about it? Well, we'll let you know. Now, it is important to note that while Napoleon III was a complicated figure, he was a buffoon, he was an autocrat, he was narcissistic, there is strong evidence to suggest that he did sincerely believe in prosperity for all Parisians. Like, you know, of course, we can disagree in terms of everything he did, what really did that, but he did believe he was trying to do that. We're going to make an economy that works for everyone. Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't Uh, even know who I was doing just now, but it could be like, anyone it could be anyone could be like any democrat yeah um so if you know if you recall our episodes on the february revolution of 1848 in france you know two episodes before this one we are well aware how the second french republic collapsed into the regime of napoleon III. we and will so are you if you listen to it which i assume you did i assume you did as well we will add that shortly after the coup d'etat of louis napoleon more than 125,000 people had organized to defend the Second French Republic. You know, there, there were issues with the Second French Republic. But let's be clear here, you know, <laughs> going into an autocratic regime is not better than, say, having, mm. a, a, having a parliamentary republic. Now, most of these people that organized to defend the Second French Republic were peasants. This is important to note, since the rise of the Second French Empire was not unanimous, there was opposition, albeit a tiny minority, which... Could explain later on when we talk about you know the the a growing opposition that, that was still in the minority but was larger than it was in that time, which is also ties into the Paris Commune. Now the population of Paris nearly doubled during the eighteen fifties and eighteen sixties, 
from a little more than a million in the start of the 1850s to almost 2 million by 1870. Most, if not nearly all, of this growth came from immigration from a variety of regions across France, including, but not limited to, the Parisian Basin, Picardy, Normandy, Champagne, and Lorraine. Many of these immigrants were under or unemployed. So it's, you know, they were already kind of um, not doing well in terms of their, once they arrived into, into Paris. Now, 1870, nearly a half a million Parisians um, that lived in Paris, one-fourth of the population, it's important to note, one-fourth of the population in Paris could be classified as indignant, being, you know, significantly indigent. poor. Indigent. Significantly poor. Paris was a very unhealthy place to live in, and not because they're French. It's because that, you know, more, you know there, there were significant health hazards, and we'll talk about it in a second, but more people died than were born every year. That's not, bleu. That's not good at all. And, you know, Sacre bleu, I am dying <laughs> of the poor sanitation and the cholera. Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, it's because of cholera. I mean, only one-fifth of all buildings in Paris had running water. That's oh, not good. It's not a good no, time. No. Uh, so to resolve, you know, and, you know, this has affected more than just the poor. You know, one-fifth of all housing having running water is bad time, right? It's not a good, yeah. even for the wealthy, because, you know, if people get sick, but it'll affect you too. So, to resolve the living situation of Paris, in 1853, Napoleon III summoned what we just mentioned, Baron Georges Haussmann, and to plan the rebuilding of the city. Now, Napoleon III and Haussmann had three goals. The first, bring more light and air into the city. You know, there was a kind of what uh, Jamie mentioned. There, there was a cholera outbreak, you know, kind of recurring, but at this time there was a cholera outbreak in Paris. And to build more sanitation by building more sewers. All right, that's good so far. Yeah, it's good. Good. Um, two. Let's see if they can ruin it. <laughs> well, two, Jamie, free the flow of capital and goods. Hmm. This is capitalism, you know. You know, we got we got to liberalize the economy, Jamie. You know, the first department stores in Paris would be on the newly constructed wide boulevards commissioned by Haussmann. This aligns more closely to how we imagine Paris today. You know, kind of like what you when you see in movies or like in pictures of like Paris being like these nice, beautiful wide boulevards with like. These, not nice, beautiful, fancy storefronts. That's more. That was constructed during this period of time. What we now imagine modern Paris to look like. Yeah, some of the first malls. Yeah, I learned about this in art history class. Wow. No, I mean that's really interesting to consider that that's occurred. And look at that. Interesting how it occurred tandem with the rise of capitalism. Mm-hmm. And the third reason, and this is really important, <coughs> which is in, important because as we saw historically in France, but also how intentional, you know, in many ways, Hausman was a prototype of Robert Moses in New York City. And if you don't uh, know who Robert Moses is, uh, it was a racist urban uh, planner that is responsible for many reasons that there is segregation in New York City and the way that it is designed. The third reason is limit the possibility of insurgency in traditional revolutionary neighborhoods. This, this is literally what they were planning. If you couldn't tell, the French love to barricade Paris. Thus, by building these white boulevards all over Paris, Hausmann believed this would make the city harder to barricade. Harder, but not impossible. Not impossible, but it would be more difficult. And, you know, as we saw in previous episode, and if you know your history, this was a real phenomenon. Napoleon III and Hausmann were worried about. Since 1827, until that time, Parisians had erected barricades 
eight times in the city. That's hell yeah. That's more than once a decade. That's Pro- so based. It's pretty cool. <laughs> like 1827 to 1853. That's you know about what thirty years. So it's about once every five five years, I guess. Yeah, that's a lot of barricades. That's, you know, it's pretty pretty. At, you know, once the presidential election. Got to um, do something about all those barricades. And, you know, it's, here's a real quote by Hausman. Quote, bringing order to this queen city is one of the first conditions of general security. Unquote. Security for who? Mm, interesting you asked that, Jamie. Anyway, we must consider this and this will become relevant Everything later. we tell you is for a reason. So pay attention. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So, you know, how would all of this be paid for? That's an important question. How would you pay for it given, you know, a market economy? Well, the National Assembly at this time did have a tax on goods brought into the city. You know, most, most places have importation tax. But this simply is not enough to pay for this massive reconstruction of Paris. Alsman created an elaborate system of, quote, proxy bonds. It's a bit complicated, but stay with me. First, he demanded money from the many contractors who were involved in all of these different projects throughout the city. Sounds crazy, but basically they said, we'll give you give this money and we'll give it to you back. You know, these contractors were promised this money back and interest upon the project's completion. Sounds crazy to be given. You're like, no, you give me money and you also do work for it. But, you know, I guess that's what happens when you have, when you're, when you're best friends with the emperor. Next, Hausman used this very same money that he raised from the contractors to be used as the collateral for all of these bonds to raise further money. It's kind of like kind of like a Ponzi scheme almost. Mm, all right. And it has been estimated that Paris owed as much as two and a half billion francs in that time's money. A truly, st- like it's just truly staggering amounts. That's how much they owed the city owed at that time. Damn. Seems a little, I don't know, a lot. <laughs> sure. Especially if like you, we don't, you don't have the uh, foresight of considering oh, inclusion of everybody. They're just doing MMT. <laughs> I guess so, but it is built on a bunch of debt. But anyway, rebuilding of Paris, this this rebuilding of Paris destroyed hundred thousand apartments and about twenty thousand buildings. This sent many people into the periphery of the city. We do have to remember that in Europe. The suburbs have a very different connotation than it does in the United States. The suburbs are viewed as something negative, as something other. This region is where all those on the periphery of society live. The wealthy desire to live in the city. And, you know, it's important to note, it's somewhat true in America, American cities now, but that's more of a recent phenomenon. This is true historically mm-hmm. to this day in, in Europe. The banlieue. Right. So, rather than save off class strife, as was intended by Napoleon III and Hausmann, the rebuilding of Paris accentuated the contrast between the wealthier Western arrondissement and the poor Northern Eastern Quartier, the people's, or also the people's Paris. It's almost like these contradictions cannot actually be resolved by the bourgeois state. They can only be managed. Hmm. That's interesting you say that. I wonder if that's true. We'll find out. Fuck around, find out. Yeah. Well, throughout this renovation of the capital, the periphery of Paris became more and more appealing. Not to who, you know, Bosses, workers, both. Well, it did offer more space, which led to one, consolidation of a proletarian labor force, and two, ample space and infrastructure for the construction of factories. So in a little way, it's a bit of both. You know, bosses obviously had an interest in building in uh, factories there, but, you know, people who needed jobs wanted to move there. So they went there. 
Now, like I said, the building and infrastructure for the construction of factories and there being a lot of space to have a, a lot of proletarian labor force led to this uh, the optical repair to be an industrial hub. Essentially, there was a proletarianization of the periphery of Paris. The per- per- proletarianization essentially is the process of creating a space and a pop and and changing a population and a portion of society to being more into a proletarian class. Wage workers. Yep. With nothing to sell but their labor. Yep. Their labor power, I should say. Yeah, and we will discuss labor power at a different time, but essentially that's the idea. People who, basically those who have to work to live. Free in the double sense, one might say. Marx, Marx said that. Yeah, Marx said that. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Um, But now those who lived on the periphery developed a sense of solidarity among each other hardened by their mutual disgust towards the wealthy who lived in the city. It has been said, one of King Louis Philippe's ministers, if you remember if you remember him, in 1834, had issued a dire warning about the growth of these factories. And, you know, these factories have been happening as a process over time, not, all, not just happened all at once in the 1850s and 60s, that this minister had warned that on this periphery being the cord that will strangle us one day. That's a very mm. dire warning. Mm. Too bad that you need the workers working there in the factories if you want shit to buy. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. But to be fair, that is a very astute warning because, well, we'll see. I mean, yeah, look, capitalism creates. Like, I don't want to spoil anything for you guys, but yeah, it sows the seeds of its own destruction. It's anyway, true. let's keep going. But, you know, by 1870, the factories surrounding Paris had only exploded in their growth. Mm-hmm. Anti-clericalism, and you're going to think, why are we talking about the church? Well, you'll see. Anti-clericalism began to grow among middle-class radicals and the urban poor in France. While there was a revival of Catholicism in parts of France, you know, the emperor's back, in other regions there was a de-Christianization where fewer and fewer people continued trusting the church, which told them there is nothing to be done regarding their suffering. Only in heaven will their reward be granted. That doesn't sound like Really, if you're if you don't have if you you can't feed your family if you're you're suffering now your your kids aren't doing well you're worried about trying to make food for your your children. You're gonna yeah, that only works on people sometimes. Yeah, but not all the time. It works more than it should, but not it did not work so well in this instance. No, and especially if like things are getting <clears throat> worse and worse and worse, you're gonna be like, what the fuck is up? So, an important element of their distrust revolved around the fact that various religious orders of the Catholic Church, you know, you know, orders of like in the priesthood, supported Napoleon III. And despite, or perhaps in response to, the regime of Napoleon III, there was a growing left in the Second French Empire. Now, although unions were illegal and would remain so until 1884, the late 1860s brought the creation of more workers' associations. You know, and Jamie can tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so before we go into what's going on with the workers in the 1860s, I want to back up a little bit and tell you about the canoe uprisings. Um, These are important because there's some of the first workers' uprisings of the Industrial Revolution, and they happened where else but France. Um, so yeah, this is a little prehistory of this uh, worker radicalization. So it didn't happen any. It didn't just happen out of nowhere. Mm-mm. Now there were some precursors. So in 1831, what happened? A bad economy caused the silk prices to drop. Oh, the canoes, by the way, they're people who worked. They're silk workers, basically. Yep. So there was a bad economy. The silk prices dropped, and the silk workers' wages dropped as well. 
Now, the workers wanted to set a minimum price for silk, obviously, because they're like, we need to make a certain amount of money in order to live. Duh. But the manufacturers refused to pay it. Boo. Because, I mean, in this case, maybe they didn't have the money because the silk price has dropped and they're like, hey, we still got to, you know, feed our families based on uh, your labor that you did while we sat on our asses. We got to exploit you still. So, yeah, the workers, they got pissed off and they seized the arsenal and the entire city of Lyon. Pretty based. Pretty based. The government sent in an army of 20,000 troops to take it back, and the workers got nothing. Boo. So it ended that way. Second Canoe Revolt of 1834, um, a prosperous economy this time, saw a rise in wages, and the bosses wanted to put a lid on it. Um, so they're like, Hey guys, I know like we're getting these really good prices now. I know before we were like, we don't have the money to pay you cause the prices dropped, but it, it, it only works one way. Sorry. Um, also the government made some laws cracking down on Republican groups. Ooh. Again, this is groups that wanted democracy. Uh, there was a bloody battle this time. 10,000 insurgents were imprisoned or deported. Damn. That's a lot of fucking canoes right there. Boku canoe. <laughs> So then the third revolt in 1848 was similar to the one before that. Um, It was part of a wave of revolutions throughout Europe, partially inspired those revolutions by the first canoe uprising. Yeah. If you, if you you see people standing up for, you know, their rights as people, they're going to be, you're going to say, wait a minute, what if we, what if we can do that too? Yeah. It's certainly possible. So it's off. So this, this uprising is often talked about as part of this, this grander wave of 1848, which we've already gone over a little bit. Um, And I think these, these, these uprisings are interesting for a few reasons. Like, obviously it's a precursor to workers, you know, doing it for themselves. Um, It also shows just how inherently unstable capitalism has been from the beginning. Right. Because you've got all these different things in the supply chain, all these different contingencies affecting this just utterly irrational mode of production in this market when people are like, oh, hey, we need to make a certain amount of money because that's the system by which we get food and shelter. Right. And the market's like, no, actually, you're going to make however the fuck you're going to make money based on whatever the fuck the market is doing in its own like crazy way if there's like bad harvest or like i don't know like some weird financial bubble you're just gonna be out on your asses like it shows it from the beginning how unstable inherently unstable capitalism is and how it causes all of these um all this turmoil in people's lives yeah particularly the lives of the workers yeah and it's something important to mention as well is that you know all three of these were not successful but I know, and it will be a recurring theme in, the, in throughout this podcast as we talk about history, especially the history of, of worker revolts and you know, peasant revolts as well. But you know, it's important to mention that a lot of these in history and future and now will fail. But guess what? That's part of the process. Because when you fail, you know, sometimes it could get worse. You know, like we saw in the second canoe revolt, there were, in fact, a lot of people were killed or deported or imprisoned. And then also even tougher imposition of, of law and order and like crime and in terms of like uh, to make sure it doesn't happen again. But guess what? You have to keep going. Class struggle must continue. But also most importantly is you just have to do it once, right? Like, well, yeah, you have to succeed once. Yeah. You have to succeed once and up, upending everything. They have to defend it every time. It's true. 
Like the IRA said to Margaret Thatcher, we only have to get lucky once. You have to get lucky every time. Yep. So, so keep that in mind, folks. You're on notice. I mean, unfortunately, we have never succeeded all the way, but there have certainly been instances of people succeeding more than the canoes did in these uprisings. Almost certainly. Now, so back to the 1860s. Yes, and uh, I'll I'll be taking back to put us on track back to the 1860s, and you know, now that we have like a very important context that Jamie gave us about the uh, worker associations and the revolts that occurred in France before this time. By 1869, more than 165 workers association had a combined 160,000 workers. That's a lot of organization. That's a lot of union men. Yep. Mostly men, I'm going to say. Yeah. And, you know, speaking, speaking of this, you know, additionally, there was a manifesto written around this time. And in fact, year prior in July of 1868, 19 women demanded that every woman be given, quote, possession of the rights which belong to her as a human person. Oh, my God. Yeah. So women you know, as people. Wow. In my France. Wow. But, you know, things are happening. There's, there's, there's some real, you know, progressive left ideas that are starting to occur in action and in ideas. Initially, these efforts by the left appeared to work in terms of, you know, making the government do things that push things along. You know, Napoleon's second French empire at this point had entered into a more liberal phase, which included, but was not limited to, you know, in 1859, there was an, there was amnesty for those who had resisted the self-coup and espoused re- radical republicanism or socialism. That was nice of them. Yeah. In 1864, the legalization of strikes happened across France. Like, like you just legalize, yeah, you could strike, which is okay. In 1868, more freedom of the press was allowed, which led to the publication of several explicitly Republican newspapers read by over 100,000 people. But it's important to mention, let's, speak, let's not get ahead of ourselves a bit, but also can, one can say it's tied to liberalism. It's almost inherently part of it as well. That the Second French Empire was very much a police state. In two decades, the Parisian police increased from 750 police officers to more than 4,000 cops. It's mm. a lot. Well, you got to protect the private property somehow. Yeah, and then, you know, going back to Jamie in terms of like some other context regarding workers. Yeah, so at the same time, um, the worker resistance in radical cities continued, and at times it caused great conflict with the state. And you could say, you can really see this push and pull where a lot of these liberal measures and these reforms were made to try to tamp down on class struggle, right? Like, why do you, do you think strikes were legalized and then the first strikes happened? I don't fucking think so. They were like, all right, we just have to, we have to, give them some concessions. We have to pacify. We have to recuperate. But the workers were still not happy. Um, So yeah, throughout this section, we're going to see a bunch of different ways that the state tried to resolve this unresolvable conflict um, between classes, both by carrot and stick. So liberal reforms and violent crackdowns. Oh, you will say you can do it in theory. You could do it. You could do it. And then when you try to do it, no, you can't do it. Yeah. So... Let's see. We got ourselves a first international. Hey, uh, the first international working men's association. That's right. Uh, Founded in 1864. It had been growing in influence. You know, Marx is telling everyone what to do. Um, Just pulling the strings. Just telling the workers, these innocent 
uh, dumb workers who are just like minding their own business, like little cogs in the machine. Marx is putting all these ideas in their heads. So let's see. In 1867, uh, the Parisian bronze barons tried to break their workers' union, but were defeated by a strike organized by the International. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, and again, in later in 1867, there was a public demonstration in Paris um, that was answered by the dissolution of its executive committee and the leadership being fined. So that's the state cracking down on workers. Um, also in 1867, a lot going on here. Uh, internationalists, history is happening. History is fucking happening. Um, internationalists elected a new committee and put forth a more radical program, even more radical. Uh, in response to that, the authorities imprisoned their leaders. And in response to that, an even more revolutionary perspective was taken to the International's 1868 Brussels Congress. So there you go. The International's influence just kept on growing and growing, especially in Paris and in other cities. Hell yeah. Um, yeah. And it was workers, workers, the lower classes of Paris. They supported a democratic republic. Yeah, and it's important to mention that, you know, the workers here are the proletariat that were in the cities, right? Mm-hmm. The urban proles. So what did they want? They wanted Paris to be self-governing. Um, smaller towns had this, but the government was, you know, probably rightfully afraid that Paris's citizens were going to be too radical. They couldn't give them too much power. And they wanted a more democratic way of managing the economy. <gasps> Sacre bleu. Yeah. La, la République démocratique et sociale, which can be translated to the Democratic and Social Republic. So things are developing. These are coming to a head. And then in 1870, in, in an act that is only semi-related to all of these currents, uh, there was a coup tried and failed by a guy named Auguste Blanqui. So who was this guy? He was pretty interesting. Um, he was a professional revolutionary who spent half of his life in prison for being involved in numerous conspiracies. He never gave up trying to overthrow the government. Um, <laughs> he was one of the prominent non-Marxist socialists of his day. Yeah, probably because also he, in many ways, was a predecessor of Marx as well. Yeah, sure. Um, followers referred to him as Le Vieux, or the old one. I don't know when they started doing that. I don't know how old he was, but <laughs> I guess he got old eventually. Could you imagine if old people were calling him that even when he was old, younger? Yeah. Livia. He just, sure. he just had old guy vibes. He's an old soul. Yeah. Um, Blanqui believed, what did he believe? He believed that a tightly organized little band of left-wing militants could one day seize revolutionary power and hand it to the people in a kind of socialism from above. So this is why I said it's only tangentially related to all of these more democratic and widespread um, currents for workers' activity because the participation of the masses in this insurrection, in this coup d'etat, was neither necessary nor desirable, according to Blanqui. He just wanted like a little band of guys to do it. Um, and then after they handed the power to the people... He did not claim to know what would happen. He was not that concerned with it. He's like, it's up to the fucking people. So in that way, he was neither a Marxist nor a utopian, right? Because the utopian socialists were all like, oh, yeah, this is how socialism is going to be in our little dream world. And Marxists are like, hey, this has to come from the people. It's not just something that like a tiny group of guys can do for you. And, so. yeah, and also that, you know, kind of like more of like the what they claim Marxist tent 
tend to claim of like a scientific analysis. It kind of it, it can best be considered as like, but it, reality is complicated. You gotta 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 think about it. We'll be careful here. Yeah, but he was based, um, and he was like. I would say something of a forerunner of vanguardist thinking, although... Almost definitely. I think the vanguard even is probably a more democratic vision of how we do the rev than the Blancis right. would it's not, say. Vanguardism, at least in how it's typically presented, is not closed. It's like people can come in, come out of the vanguard. Yeah, no, this is just like a tight little band of conspirators, right? right? Uh, but you know what? I'd say he figured some shit out pretty well for um, the year that he was born. Um, Some innovation occurred here. And here's a little quote about him that I got from Wikipedia. Blanqui, he had about a thousand followers, many of them armed and organized into cells of 10 persons each. Each cell operated independently and was unaware of the members of the other groups, communicating only with their leaders by code. Blanqui had written a manual on revolution, instructions for an armed uprising, to give guidance to his followers. Which we might read. Mm-hmm. Though their numbers were small, the Blanquists provided many of the most disciplined soldiers and several of the senior leaders of the commune. Honestly, reading it as a leftist now, as a member of DSA, I'm honestly a little jealous. <laughs> it, seemed, it seems interesting for sure. Um, but, you know, to, to go back to kind of, uh, you know, a great context by Jamie in terms of like the worker resistance and also the introduction of August Blanqui and his thinking. Um, which is known as Blanquist thought. The important mention is like Jamie mentioned something along the lines of in that Paris wanted to be self-governing. What does that mean? Well, Paris did not have a mayor. What? Like, no, the position itself was abolished in 1794, shortly after the French Revolution, and then came back after, you know, the revolution uh, was over and Napoleon, and Napoleon was gone. But then it was abolished again in 1848. Parisians could not even elect people to their city council. The emperor appointed them. This led to, you know, kind of what Jamie was saying, calls for self-determination. And by 1870, there were calls for municipal autonomy with a fusion of republicanism. This is very important. This is where the concept of establishing a commune of sorts became increasingly popular. Commune meaning just, it just basically means like a, dis- like a district. Like, it just means, like, district in, in French. That's just literally what that is. But this is where people started saying, and where the original cause of having a Paris commune came from. But it's, it, it's, we will see in the development of talking about this that original demands can become radical and revolutionary demand given the changing historical times and historical conditions. That ass. It's not so much about having a plan right away, but rather... History develops itself by how workers and the lower classes see possibilities open up as they push a class struggle happens. An important figure in this story, which we'll see more and more as we talk about, we actually actually talk about the Paris Commune, but it's important to mention this person now, is someone by the name of Raoul Rigault. His political ideology was informed by his obsession over the French Revolution, part neo-Jacobin and part Blanquist. Now, Regault was born in Paris in 1846. Despite coming from a respectable, quote-unquote, family, situated somewhere between truly bourgeois and but not quite proletariat, a series of events led him to leave, live on his own with almost no money. Regault was a complicated personality with a notorious temper. And an essential fact about him, 
that and, and arguably at the core of our journey with this person is he studied the police of Paris quite closely, even sneaking into the court within the Palace of Justice dressed as a lawyer in order to listen to the differing cases of political prisoners being held there. In 1864, he joined Marx's International Working Man's Association, or the First International, so starting to get, get some, some interesting ideas into his head. By 1865, a year later, he organized a student gathering in the eastern Belgian city of Liège. Later that same year, he, all, he was arrested under suspicion he had founded a secret society known as the Renaissance. And, you know, to no surprise, he was attracted to the ideology of Blancism. Interest- I mean... I'm a little attracted to the ideology known as Blancism. I'm not going to lie. It's definitely, definitely, <laughs> definitely interesting, but I guess it's to no surprise. Oh, interesting. He's interested in it, and he started a secret society shortly after joining International. Some ideas are forming in his head, folks. Mm-hmm. Now, a law passed on June, 6th, um, June 8th, sorry, June 8th, 1868, permitting freedom of association led to with uh, basically being like people can congregate somewhere without having a reason, explicit reason for it, led to an explosion of public meetings, many of them political in nature. From 1868 to mid-1870, there were almost a thousand public meetings with as many as 20,000 attendees in one night. Damn, that's a that's a big old meeting, gotta say. Yeah, I mean, that's... As someone who attended the DSA convention when there are about a thousand people in one room, that was like way too many. Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> I mean is, this is what democracy looks like, question mark? I guess so, yeah. I mean, the main constituency of these meetings were workers. Oh, that is not like the DSA, no. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, many people with DSA are workers, but I get what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The police also attended these meetings, funny enough, but... Not for the same reason. They were to spy on their proceedings. Very interesting fact is that because the, these detectives were making such copious notes in order to spy on all these workers of what the hell they were doing, has led to a curious coincidence of history that there is such rich historical documentation available to us about how these workers were developing themselves politically. Nice. That's a real self-own on the part of the bourgeois state. I like it. Yeah, it's really interesting that that is available. You can see workers who were you know, suppressed in terms of not being able to express and speak to one another in such an open way. You can see that development. It's quite fascinating that that exists. 1870, Napoleon III appointed a new cabinet led by Emile Oliver, a moderate Republican. This mute this move, viewed by many as a conciliatory maneuver, you know, it makes sense. You're getting a Republican, although not a not a radical one, but all Republican nonetheless, was quickly reversed when the financing of Hausman's project. Remember when we were talking about that? That's relevant again. Mm. When everyone found out about what the hell was going on, and you know, very quickly started to unravel. It's like, wait, oh my god, oh my god, we have so much. We have how much in debt? And so. This quickly became a scandal and further increased resentment the public had toward Napoleon III by, and it led to, you know, expressed by more strikes and public meetings decrying the government. Now, there is a very important event in this time that probably was the tipping point in terms of a, a public opinion in Paris, um, which, was ex- which was later accentuated by later events, which was the killing of journalist Victor Noir by Pierre Bonaparte, Napoleon III's cousin, and it's so fucking stupid. It's pretty stupid. All right, I'm going to tell you about it. So, on January 11th, 1870, 
Rigaud's friend, Victor Noir. Oh, I didn't realize he was friends with uh, Rigaud. I guess I did because I wrote this down, but I forgot. Um, <laughs> he was shot. He was shot dead by Prince Pierre Bonaparte, a cousin of the emperor. So there were these two other guys named Henri Rochefort. Now I'm trying to do the French pronunciation. <laughs> tell, me how, tell me how I'm doing. And Pascal Grousset. They ran a paper called La Revanche. And Victor Noir, he worked. He's like, I just work here. All right. Right. And this paper had a feud with this other paper that was loyal to Napoleon III named L'Avenir de la Corse. Because Revanche was always talking shit on Napoleon, saying we want democracy, blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah. So Pierre, cousin of Napoleon, wrote a letter to the editor of this newspaper calling them cowards and traitors. And Grisset saw it. The boss of the paper of La Revanche saw it and he was like, I demand satisfaction. So Prince Pierre Bonaparte wrote back to him, quote, after having outraged each of my relations, you insult me with the pen of one of your menials. Wow. I guess I guess it wasn't the boss who wrote it. I guess it was a different guy. Uh, my turn had to come. Only I have an advantage over others of my name of being a private individual while being a Bonaparte. I therefore ask you whether your ink pot is guaranteed by your breast. Wow. I live not in a palace. He's like, literally like, here's my address, bitch. I'll fucking be there. He's like, I live in a palace, not in a palace, but at 59 Rue de Toy. I promise to you that if you present yourself, you will not be told that I left. Damn, he dropped the pin. He (laughs) dropped the pin. He literally did that shit. So what did the boss do? Uh, did he go to duel with him himself? No, no, no. He sent two of his employees, Victor Noir and Olique de Fonvier, as his second to fix the terms of a duel. So he didn't send them to duel. He was just trying to like set up a duel. Yeah, arrange it for me. Yeah. And uh, honestly, I feel like we should bring duels back because maybe people would be a little more careful about what they tweet. <laughs> yeah, maybe. TBH. Or maybe they, they would just be killing each other all the time in duels like they did back in the day. Yeah, I mean, maybe, yeah, I mean, so you're saying that Twitter fingers should be turned to trigger fingers. I mean, you said it, not me. I, I, I'm saying you, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying from what you're, you're, you're saying. Sure, sure. Why not? So, yeah, um, instead of talking to this fucking Bonaparte little brat, instead of talking to his seconds, as was the custom, they went to talk to him directly. Mm-hmm. Probably a bad idea. Um, and they presented him a letter signed by Grousset, and that made him mad. So the prince declined the challenge. Um, he said, I will fight my fellow nobleman, Rochefort, but not his quote-unquote menials. Um, so I guess maybe the duel was supposed to be between them and him, the second, like not, uh, not the actual nobleman, right? That makes sense? Yeah. So Noir was like, who you call menials, you stuck up piece of shit. And then, <laughs> you know, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, and then according to Fonvier, the prince slapped him in the face and fucking shot him. Wow. Shot him dead. Wow. Uh, now, according to the prince, Noir struck him first and then he shot him and kind of like stand your ground thing. Likely story. Likely story. Uh, yeah. So the prince stood trial for the murder and was acquitted of all wrongdoing when the court accepted his version. Of course. Oh, my God. So, you know, lesson from this story, I guess, is don't get involved in your boss's duels because he definitely isn't paying you enough to be doing that. No, not at all. 
But um, yeah, the funeral was held the following day. And then what was once a funeral, it transformed into a massive demonstration against the government, which was attended by 100,000 people against the government. Like he said, he's like, I'm just a private citizen. I'm not even in the government. That's why I'm going to fuck you up. And like, nobody cared. They're like, you're fucking bone apart. It's all part of the same thing. Right. Right. So Parisian workers were. It's like if Trump's son did that shit. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's yeah. like, like well, I'm not part of the government. It's like, no, fuck you. Yeah. Yes, you fucking are. So yeah, Parisian workers were super mad about this. They were big mad. Big mad. As well as the arrests of other journalists who had been critical of the emperor. Yeah, so things are heating up a bit, you know. Return to form, as we saw with, like, the previous time we talked about Napoleon III. He held a vote, a referendum of sorts, on May 18th, 1870, whether the public approve of the liberal changes that had occurred in the empire. Across the nation of France, there were about 7.4 million people who approved or voted yes of these changes, and about... One and a half million people who disapproved or voted no. So, you know, the yeses took it by a good margin, but the noes were significantly more than the noes when the original empire was created. So there's a growing opposition. However, it is important to note that within Paris, the capital of the empire, 128,000 people voted yes in this vote, but they were outnumbered by the noes at 184 thousand people voted no in the election so they just didn't like the government they were they, we saw everything we spoke about can you blame the urban workers to be like no fuck you we don't like any of this that's going on you, you're locking up journalists you're cracking down on strikes you're, you just shot you're, our guy you're, yeah you're, you're, your fucking cousin just shot him and got off scot-free yeah and then also you know every I, I live with 10 fucking people i don't have fucking water i can't do anything you know i i hate my fucking job i work 12 hours a day you want me to say your liberal changes no fuck you buddy fuck your liberal reforms so this did prove that there were significant divisions in paris and in many ways defeated the purpose of the vote you you know it if most people in the countryside support you, that's one thing. But if people who in the city that you live in don't support you, that's a little concerning. Yeah. And, and you know, the, he was trying to create unity with this, but it really just made the French, the Parisians, more pissed off. And in anything, made it clear who was mad because most of the notes came and all the one and a half million came from the city. So it made aware that, no, actually, we know we are all mad about this. So some thoughts started, you know, some gears start moving in people's heads. Like, oh, we all we all don't like this guy, right? Well, at least most of us don't. Now, let's move into the Franco-Prussian War. The, what is what is this war that, and it, it's not a, really a spoiler, but, you know, toppled the Second French Empire. You know, later in 1870, that same year, Napoleon III dragged France into a war with Prussia. Yeah, well, you look, usually you get into a war, you think it's going to like make everybody have to be patriotic again. It's going to be a great war. The government, uh, you know, nationalism is a hell of a drug, but only if you win. Yeah, only if you win. Winning the important part. And, and only if it doesn't come at the cost of, you know, everybody just being super starving and fucked up from it. Yeah. And, you know, to Jamie's point, this inevitably undermined the power and strengthened the res- undermine the power undermine his power. Napoleon III strengthened the legitimacy of the resistance against the government that was beginning to form. Right, it was this resistance began to form 
right up to this point, right? People were already upset in the cities, but the strengths in the legitimate op- opposition to the government and hastened the collapse of the Second French Empire. Oops. Yep. You did nationalism a bit too strong there, buddy. Um, so there was a claimed public reason for the war. It was the candidacy of Prince Leopold of the house. And this is a, a name a, a name of a, of a royal house that is not really too important, but important is meant to be historically accurate, the house of Hohenzollern to the throne of Spain. Now, the reason why they cared about it is because, you know, Prince Leopold of the house of Hohenzollern is... House of Hohes. Is uh, basically part of the uh, uh, Hasburg family. And uh, basically putting him in the throne of Spain would be, you know... Napoleon III was worried about a fear of encirclement. Um, but there were other reasons Napoleon III had in dragging, you know, France into war. He wanted to, ironically enough, increase the legitimacy. He had declined, apart from all the domestic reasons, but additionally so, due to the mess, you know, loss that occurred in Mexico in 1867, which, you know, funny enough, that whole that whole period of time that France was involved in is one of the battles there, um, known as the Battle of Pueblo, is actually the reason Cinco de Mayo happened. Only Mexicans from Puebla care about it. Luckily, there are a lot of Puebloan immigrants right here in Bushwick, so we get to enjoy it um, alongside of them. Yes, in people. a non-problematic way. Hopefully. Additionally, his legitimacy was threatened by the growing strength of Republicans and Socialists in France. The sentiment prior to the war was one of a presumptive victory. You know, we're all going to win. We're going to win. We're going to win. We're going to beat those Prussians, you know. And, and you know, the Franco-Prussian War officially began when Napoleon III declared war on July 19th, 1870. Here we go. Now, we know France got owned by Prussia in this war, and this is not like a, 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 you know, opinion. This is an objective fact. They got demolished. The the war only lasted six months. That's insane. And it was an overwhelming victory for Prussia. At the beginning of the war, France was an empire, and Prussia and its allies were a constellation of duchies and kingdoms. By the end of the war, in only six months, the Second French Empire was no more, and the unification of Germany was complete. Yes, this war is the reason Germany got unified. Out of this short war... Good job, war. <laughs> good job, Napoleon. The, the, out of this short war, the topic of our miniseries, the, the Paris Commune, arose, and the power in Europe shifted from France to Germany.